So we're at a temple called Bang Malaya. And when you get to the temple, there's a wooden walkway that goes right through the middle. It's very narrow, about the width of an average footpath. And we're maybe a third of the way through, and then behind us, there's a bus full of tourists. And in that, that, that bus load, I'm guessing there's about 120 people. Oh yeah, I was about to say 150. And we've walked, walked into the complex, and they've caught up to us. And now we're wedged in this sea of people. <laughs> I don't think we've actually moved any more than half a centimetre in the last 25 minutes. So we stopped here, we thought we'll just let this group go past and then we'll keep moving because we want to take our time. Then another bus full came. And now another bus full has just come through. And we're basically pinned up against the wall here. But this is a fairly common occurrence. Yes. Would you say? <laughs> I agree. Yeah. <laughs> We're just lucky that we happened to score the hat trick. <laughs> Before we start today's episode, I would just like to say thank you to all of the courteous, patient, and kind travellers out there who don't trap other people in corners for over half an hour. Yeah, as fun as that bit of audio sounded, it really wasn't. We were stuck there for quite a long time. I was wondering if we had to sit there and actually just start recording the pod because I had no idea when we were going to make it out. But at least we got free tour guides who all spoke in Chinese. We definitely got the full tour. I just have no idea what they were saying. <laughs> but that piece of wall they were pointing out was very pretty. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> uh, if you want to see that piece of wall, we've got photos on our Instagram account at Where Are You Taking Me Pod. My name is Nick King. My name is Gabby Lyons, and welcome to yet another episode of Where Are You Taking Me? We're just going to flat out admit that this episode is just a tiny bit of a lie. We always talk about recording our podcast in the country we're talking about, mm -hmm. but we're not doing that today. We've broken our very first rule. So today we're going to talk about Cambodia. Yay, Cambodia! But we're actually in Vietnam. Because we had to do a visa jump. We jumped across the border, we came back, but we wanted to talk about that. And obviously we can't talk about something we haven't done, so that's why we're back in Nam. We'd spent the last two weeks in Cambodia, starting out in Simri, heading down to the capital of Phnom Penh. And then we made our way south towards some of the islands like Korong and across to a town we fell head over heels in love with called Kampot. Now you are in Kampot, uh, Cambodia, where the best pepper grow. Why does the best pepper grow in Kampot? Yeah, because of the climate tropical and so the soil and, um, you know, the air from the sea. And our farm is called Bow Tree and we are here um, eight, eight years, including the shop. The shop only three years. So when you taste the black pepper, uh, black pepper is made from the fully formed greens. Nearly ripe, but not yet ripe. Uh, after the harvest, the green pepper we dry in the sun for a couple of days and then the green turning black. So black pepper is very easy to make. The flavor of black on pot pepper is, has intense, sharp flavor. And the seasoning, the flavoring, they're building up slowly inside your mouth. And they, 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 bring back, they bring the aromatic, the eucalyptus, the mint, and the flower. And, the flower. and then it's still here, you know, inside your test bird. 
and then they stay there for more than three minutes. That's why when you taste, you like, oh, you taste, taste, taste. It like you mix the spices together and become more spicy. So to test a real compote flavor and seasoning, you have to take a little bit of time. Relax, you know, like compote. Black, I call it for men, red for women, and this one for, yeah, for somebody that they don't like black and red pepper. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been told a little hint that the red pepper isn't just for hot food or for dinner, it's also for dessert. You can put yes. this on ice cream. Yes. Why? <laughs> Why put pepper on you ice have, cream? Uh, you have to grab some ice cream and then after I give you the red compote pepper. It has, um, you know, the seasoning and, and also the fruitiness. Ooh. I wish I can say the right word, but it just tastes so amazing, like open your, you know, like your mouth and it's just uh, so delicious so is kampot pepper the best pepper in the world yeah it's the best it's the only pepper in the world that got uh, protected by a geography indication so only called kampot pepper only uh, come from kampot province not all kampot land that they can grow um, a special quality like this only five area that the stay between cap and kampot yes like champagne in france it's really funny going to Asia because you start missing some of your favourite condiments, including salt and pepper, unless you get to Kampot, which is immensely famous for both, <laughs> particularly the pepper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're around town, you're dining in different restaurants, you'll find that pepper is in pretty much everything. And I must apologise to you, Gab, because I let you down on the day we did that interview. Because I tried all of the pepper in the shop, I was talking a bit like this, <laughs> which is not interview suitable. <laughs> Uh, and we ran out of water, so I was pretty much out of action for about an hour there. Couldn't say anything. You were thrilled. <laughs> and luckily we did buy some of the pepper as well that we're going to take home, so I actually get to taste it because you were like our little tasting guinea pig while I yeah. had a chat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was me. So we've decided to dedicate this episode to Kempot because we fell wildly in love with Kempot to a point where we didn't really want to leave. It's one of those towns that as you walk around, you feel like you've been transported to a little tiny regional town in France. You've got those French colonial buildings that are bright yellow and with white trimming. And when you walk inside them, they're really high ceilings, the occasional chandelier, beautifully ornate windows, little tiny bookshops tucked around every corner or vintage clothing shops. Not to mention, you didn't really need to look in either direction as you crossed the street. It was really quiet. It's a very easy town to fall in love with. Mm -hmm. And that's obvious too by the amount of expats that are around town. A lot of people sort of middle-aged, some a little bit younger that have chosen to call Campot home. Mm -hmm. And you know when you go on holidays and you visit a town, often you'll find in restaurants, there's like a little magazine that's got all the information you need. Community notice board style. Yeah, look, Campot is no different. They've got a magazine called the Campot Survival Guide, (laughs) which I started to read through and I realised the more and more of it I read... The more the book is just a piss take. It is a free magazine as well, we should mention. (laughs) In the middle, there's a couple of pages here about the local characters, which basically seems like an opportunity for the editor of this magazine to rip on a few of the expats around town. He's given them nicknames and descriptions, the idea being you can go through and tick them off as you see them, Mm -hmm. uh, including characters such as Juggle and Jim. My personal favourite. Now, Juggle and Jim is seen at most city bars every night. This unassuming character, when roused, performs miracles with balls. (laughs) If you can work out who he is and catch him on the right night, you may well get him to perform, but don't hold your breath. We didn't see Juggling Jim. I'm really upset. No, 
<laughs> the next one, though, we definitely saw. This isn't even a person. This is Racy Dog. Racy Dog. Apparently, Racy patrols a beat around the 2000 Monument. He's currently unbeaten by any form of motor transport. Probably all you'll see of him is a clean pair of heels as he passes you. We saw Racy Dog legging it along the river several times over. Mm-hmm. He fast. I, I really feel for the scooters that have to kind of awkwardly swerve around him while he's trying to bite at their tyres, trying to like egg them on to have a race with him. The town itself is great, but that just gives you a bit of a demonstration of what the people are like. People there are fun and they want to have a chat. And especially the expats, they've got stories to tell. If you want to hear them, pull up a seat, grab a draft beer, and they'll be more than happy to tell you a little bit about themselves and also the town. One of the main reasons I wanted to visit Camp Pot personally was to visit a building called Bokor Hill Station. Now, back in the 20s, Bokor Hill Station was built by the French as a resort. Since then, it's been abandoned and refurbished several times over. The last couple of years, though, it's become a real hit with tourists and photographers because it's been sitting there in its abandoned state. Big old concrete building, kind of ghastly and creepy. Now, the drive up to the station itself will take you an hour or so from Camp Hot, and it winds and weaves its way up through the National Park. It goes up so high that the climate completely changes. It was only a couple of kilometres from the station that the temperature dropped by about 10 degrees and then this fog rolled in. Sitting on the back of the bike as the passenger, I could see lights appear in the fog and as quickly as they'd appear, they disappear again. It was this instantly eerie, uncomfortable horror film moment for me. And on top of that, it was, it was wet. As soon as we hit mm-hmm. this fog, it was so dense that we were just soaked. My sunglasses were fogging up. My rain jacket was covered in water. The handlebars of the bike became slippery. It was so intense and just 0% visibility. Now, if you are hoping to go there and check it out in its abandoned state, don't do it. In recent months, it's been refurbished and repainted. It now operates as a hotel. But on the day we were there, there wasn't a single car in the car park and not a soul to be seen, except for that one guy. There was one guy cleaning the pavement with a toothbrush and he was in full dressed up 1920s garb, which made it even weirder. Yeah, he was... When do you think of like... A bellboy from the era? Yes. He was that guy. He was that guy. And he didn't even look at us as we were walking around the building. It was just bizarre. Now, even though the building has been renovated, it's still very eerie and uncomfortable to visit. And that's before you even know the very real dark history of the place. We'll get to that in just a second. We asked our tour guide, Sandy, to explain to us what the building was like before the recent renovation. It looked much the same. They didn't change any of the like buildings like the structure they've just basically refurbed inside give it a render give it a lick of paint but if you imagine what it looks like now with all the paint stripped off and it's like ruined basically just black and gray i remember my first time inside and it was like i was scared you can go down to the basement and there's just random shit like a chair in the corner of the room if you watch a horror movie for me that pops into my head but for me, I'm leading this tour, so I've got to be at the front where I'd rather be at the back. Why do you think it's such a draw card for people when they come to Camp Hot? Because it looks spooky. People enjoy that stuff. They just picture it being haunted. But this is before we even tell the story about about it being a slaughterhouse for the Khmer Rouge. So even before they know the facts about it, I think it gives people an adrenaline rush. Once I tell the stories, everyone's just like silent. 
yeah, so when the French colonised, this was basically their party place. It was a hotel, resort, casino, and like all the friends, family, all the rich people from France would come here and party. But then again, when uh, Cambodia got the independence, they left. And there is a story that the Cambodians turned this into a hospital, but I've looked online and I can't see anything. The story was that they turned into a hospital, but then when the Khmer Rouge came through, they chained the doors and then burned it through with everyone inside. When they eventually came through, this was another slaughterhouse. So off the edge here, it's 1.1 kilometers to sea level, just a straight drop. So they'd have people here, slaves working again. But when they were too far gone, where they couldn't work, it was like big, big boulders set maybe like ten meters apart with a rope. So that was the fencing, and they'd stand them up on the boulders and say, "You have two choices: you either jump to your death, or we shoot you." But because they were the Khmer Rouge, they wanted to save money on bullets. If someone got chose to be shot, they'd shoot them in the kneecap or the shoulder, somewhere that's not fatal, so they'd fall anyway to the death. Now, there was a phrase in there that you might have missed. This was another slaughterhouse. Bokor National Park is huge, but there's really only one road in and one road out. Yet just over a kilometre down that road from Bokor Hill Station, you'll find exactly what Sandy was talking about. So, we are still at the old French Christian church, which was built in 1917. It's pretty self-explanatory. The French needed somewhere to pray because they are Christian. When they left, it was abandoned because Cambodians are Buddhist, so they had no use for it. When the Khmer Rouge regime started, this was the last remaining stronghold. They've changed the windows into panels so they could have sniper posts set up. So they had Cambodian slaves that lived up here, and obviously they needed food, so they'd march them down to the rice fields every day and then back up every night. But because they were uh, malnourished, so they'd kill them here. There's one room in here where there's a wall full of bullet holes, so they'd stand them up and shoot them. But if they wanted to save money on bullets, they'd use banana leaves and slit their throats. There used to be some Khmer graffiti inside, which has now been painted over. And there was quotes like, like for example, one was, um, I never knew a man until I opened him up. That was a history lesson I just I wasn't expecting to get on that day. I had no idea that the church and also the hill station had been used by the Khmer Rouge until we got there. And when you, you visit those buildings, and the church especially when you walk through it, it's so undeniable that feeling that you get, that sort of dread when you, you recognise the atrocities that took place there. It was really... It was, it was a heavy day, but if you do go down that way, I recommend you check it out. Mm. It was one of those places that walking through, you could feel that really horrible energy and you can see still bullet holes in the wall. It was yeah. it was a lot. <laughs> it was a yeah. lot. Okay, just a quick history recap. Khmer Rouge was a brutal regime that ruled Cambodia under the leadership of dictator Pol Pot from 1975 to 1979. In fact, the KR regime started only two weeks before the fall of Saigon. Pol Pot was attempting to create a Cambodian master race through social engineering. Declaring 1975 as year zero in the country, Pol Pot isolated Cambodia from the rest of the world, forcing people from their homes to work in rice fields. 
Currency was abolished. He outlawed owning private property and the practice of religion was illegal. Under his control, more than two million people died at the hands of the Khmer Rouge. And they weren't afraid to turn on themselves either. This was mass genocide on a grand scale. Those killed were either executed as enemies of the regime or died from starvation, disease or being overworked. Apart from those that died in the rice fields, many intellectuals, artists and revolutionary threats were taken to massive prisons to be tortured or executed at the now more commonly known killing fields. We visited the fields and, um, well, I don't even know how to describe it. It was a, it was a really heartbreaking day for me. Yeah, that's another long and heavy sort of day. Usually you will visit the S21 prison and the killing fields back to back. They kind of work in together like that. If you are going to go to Phnom Penh and Cambodia, it, it's almost a must see just to understand the scale of the event and the devastation it caused. And it really helps you to understand how Cambodia exists as a nation today. Mm. Like a lot of the stuff that, that happened during that time there's still threads of that weaving through Cambodian society. It's, it's awful. It's uncomfortable. S21, the prison, is a really major part of that history, being that over the four-year regime, 17,000 people were kept in this prison, which was originally a high school. And of that, only 12 people survived. It, it was just such a heartbreaking experience to walk around. There were moments I was really choked up especially seeing a lot of images of children that were kept in the prison as well. As you walk around the prison, you're given an audio tour which walks you through every room. And one part, you go to one of the cells that belong to one of the prisoners. And there's a voiceover from that prisoner telling you what it was like to be there and to live in that very particular cell. And then when you get to the end of the tour, that guy's sitting there with his oh. book and to have a chat to you. You, you. you lulled into this assumption that the voices you're hearing are of people that have passed away. And then you walk out and he's sitting there 50 metres from this mm. cell in which he was imprisoned and tortured and starved on a daily basis. Yet he goes back there every day to share his story. It's a heavy day, but it's, it's an absolute essential. But the fact of the matter is, Nick, that was between 1975 to 1979. And as far as we're aware, that's where it ended, right? That's what we think. But that's just not the case. No, war doesn't end when two sides decide to stop fighting. For many people that then have to go on and exist in a place where war has happened... There is that, that shadow of tragedy in the aftermath that they've got to grow up in. We went out for dinner one night in Campot and looking around the restaurant, there was a bookshelf and on it, there was a book. The cover had this familiar face and we realised it was actually the guy running the restaurant. The book was his story of what it was like to grow up in Cambodia following the fall of the Khmer Rouge. I have uh, a lot of names. <laughs> uh, my name is actually uh, In Sam Eun and uh, everyone called me Bodka. I wondered, Vodka, if you could take us back to your childhood and what it was like growing up in Cambodia. Yes, uh, I was born in the refugee camp in the year 1983. Not bad in the refugee camp, there's support from UN. In the year 92, the camp is closed. No more camp, refugee camp anymore. Everyone had to come to Cambodia for election in the year 1993. Uh, so my family moved from the camp to Cambodia. My mom decided to move to another part from in this country. So we decided to the part of the Khmeru at the time. So we moved from Kampot to the north of Cambodia. Yeah, we call uh, Bantemenchai province. And we live 
in the part of the Khmer Rouge at the time. When I think of everything that happened with the Khmer Rouge, everything finished in my brain in 1979, but that wasn't the case. So what was it like for you growing up? And that was still very much a part of life, that the Khmer Rouge was still in power. What was it like to grow up with still having that influence? The people, they, they know and they learn that Khmer Rouge finished in the year 1979, but it, it not exactly. The civil war, civil war still happened in year, until 1997 or 98, along the Thailand border and some part in the jungle of Cambodia. When the Khmer Rouge, after India 1979, they moved to the jungle and to again back to government. Some people never know the people live with the Khmer Rouge on the part during the civil war fighting and also my family got experience we live at the middle way and the, the middle line half of government and another side is Khmer Rouge. Yeah, people was killed every day especially landmine you know we never know they put the landmine somewhere like at night time they put the landmine so in the morning we, we go to work in the right field and get bomb and cut the, the body, the leg, everything. I see people was killed every day, you know, at that time, yeah. In year 92 or 93, my father was killed by the Khmer Rouge. Whoa, why, how? Yes, because, you know, the Khmer Rouge troop, they moved to fight with the government troop. My father go to work, you know, like the farmer in the morning, go to the right field and, you know, for working. So my father just saw the move and then they, they have to kill. No, not allow someone to know where they move to somewhere to fight. So at the time, I cannot take my, my, my father back. I have to leave him in the jungle forever. And I never see him until he... He just say goodbye in the morning to me and then never see him come back. I never see his body. He's gone forever, never come back. When did everything get better? <laughs> when did everything for you change? Uh, it's almost in year when I moved to Kampot back. My mum my had to uh, decide to move to Kampot and my mum take all the kids. It's not big change for us because we don't have the land here. So we ask someone like my relative to live beside of the house, make the tank roof from the tank, the roof from the tank, so we sleep there together and try to work. Your mother sounds like a really inspirational person after what she experienced um, during the rule of Kemaru and the way that she's kept your family all together. Can you tell me a little bit about your mother? Um, she is a really strong lady. She do everything for the kid, and she try to put her to school, even though we don't have anything. You know, from zero come back here. You know, in Cambodia, the most the man who is the income. You know, not the lady. I have to be the man at the time with my mom to work. You know, and keep all another kid go to school. So what was your motivation? What made you want to go the whole way through school and keep pushing further to be, to be who you are now? Uh, this is the long story hard to tell. It's, uh, you want to know, you have, you have to read the book, You Can Call Me Vodka. Yeah. I have a lot of experience in my whole life. 
you know, bad thing had a lot of happened in my life, you know. In modern Kanpot, in modern Cambodia, what makes you happy? Make me happy, you know, I can see all my families better and we do the, all the best and can make my family family together in one restaurant. Yeah, we're working together. I want the people to know my story. Yeah, now I got my dream come true. Vodka's book is available online. It's called You Can Call Me Vodka. But if you happen to be in Kempot, just stop by Lemongrass Restaurant and he's more than happy to sit down and have a chat and share some of his stories with you. Let me try and translate what that monk is trying to say. What he wants us to talk about now is the temples of Angkor. Many people know it as Angkor Wat. It is the thing that most people will come to Cambodia to see. You've been twice. This was your second trip. How has it changed? I think first and foremost we have to discuss the fact that the admission price has changed since I was last here. It was $20 for me to come in last time, but it's now $37 for a day pass, or if you want to go for three days it's about $62. But by no means does that mean you shouldn't visit. It is still magical, it really is, and we watched it as the sun was coming up behind the three spires of Angkor Wat and the sky just looks like it's on fire with these temples rising mm. out of it. You'll never forget it. No, and it is absolutely magical. So as much as the price was a little bit of a shock to our budget, I think that it, it, it's still absolutely worthwhile. The only other major change, and I really shouldn't be surprised by this, is that there were a lot of people there, Nick. The last time I was there, and this was only maybe three years ago, I kind of felt like my friend and I traveling ran the place a little bit. We had areas to ourselves and we could visit temples and we were the only people there. Now that just wasn't the case. There were little groups with flags everywhere. There were just hundreds of people. There were points like at the beginning of this episode where I felt really trapped. How about you? This was your first time seeing Angkor and all of the beautiful temples and we saw a lot of temples while we were there. What was it like for you? Yeah, it was a big day. We, we chose to get a one-day pass. We spent 12 or 13 hours there, and we walked through just about every single temple that we could. Uh, the only saving grace when it comes to those crowds is the fact that the venue is so huge and there's so many places beyond the two or three big temples. They start to thin out a little bit. Mm. Did you have a favourite? Did you see something this time you didn't see last time that you, that you just loved? We managed to see one temple that I'd never seen before called Priya Khan. And this temple has got a lot of restoration works ongoing at the moment. So no doubt it's changing every day. There's a new brick laid it. So soon enough, I'm sure it'll look even more grand than the scale we saw it at. It's quite hard to make recommendations about Angkor Wat because yeah. the place sells itself because it is stunning. If we were going to offer any advice, though, my number one tip would be to do your research because it is so big. And there's so many temples and places to stop on your one day or three days, however long you decide to spend there. If you can work out the places you want to see, the temples that you're really interested in, that will stop your tuk-tuk driver just dropping you off at the big ones and getting stuck in those crowds. There's literally hundreds of mm. them. Meet up with them the day before you go on your tour. Sit down and have a tea or a beer and plan that itinerary so they don't just drive you around on the map and show you everything that everyone else is going to see. Otherwise you'll end up at the Tomb Raider temple like four times over. <laughs> yes, you will. And that is where all of the tourists are. Would you recommend the Tuk Tuk as being the way to get around? 
something I didn't know until we got there was that you can take your own scooter or motorbike in. If you've got an admission pass to get in for that day, it doesn't really matter what motor transport you take. The advantage of having the tuk-tuk driver was that we got to put our feet up for a couple of kilometers. But I think having your own scooter will allow you to have your own time frame. You don't feel like someone's waiting on you. My other piece of advice would be, again, with research, you should recognize that it's not just one built community of temples. These temples stretch far and wide outside of Angkor. There are some that were within 37 kilometers to another temple. And then one that was probably your favorite, Bang Malaya, was 67 kilometers away from Angkor. Again, that's the temple that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode where we were wedged there. And that was pretty unusual to have that many people there at a time. But that was a separate day for us. We grabbed a scooter, we did the 67Ks out east, I think it was, <laughs> and 67Ks back. But it was amazing and completely different to all the other ones that we'd seen. Yeah. Angkor Wat is the big hitter in Cambodia. It's huge. It's universally recognized. It's on their flag. But there's plenty of other great stuff to see in the country. And as we moved around, we got talking to some travelers to find out outside of Angkor Wat, what else is a must-see when you come to Cambodia? Uh, my name is Jasper Tuinenburg and I'm from Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Okay, so outside of Angkor Wat, where else is a must-see in Cambodia? Uh, probably Muldikiri, because of the elephants and the landscape. And it's a whole other, uh, how do you say it, a whole other place in Cambodia. It's really different than Siem Reap. Is it hard to get to? Yeah, it's like 15 hours with the bus and the roads are terrible. <laughs> how was the bus trip for you? Uh, I'm quite tall, so how do you, how do you, do you say hell in uh, nice way to say hell? Uh, <laughs> no, it was okay because yeah, you know Cambodia, so you know the the road trips are gonna be a bit longer than you used to. So yeah, outside of um, Angkor Wat, what do you suggest people see when they come to Cambodia? So we went to the Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary, which is amazing. It was for monkeys and elephants. Um, they had three elephants there and they had 25,000 acres of jungle. But yeah, it was just amazing because compared to other places, it was a proper sanctuary. And like friends were like, oh, did you ride an elephant? I'm like, no, because that's not what it is. Um, and you found where they were from, so they came from the logging industry in Cambodia. Um, but yeah, I'd recommend it. We did an overnight stay. Partying in Cambodia, do you recommend also? Yeah, so <laughs> we did Pub Street in Siem Reap a lot. <laughs> we're drinking buckets of cocktails for six dollars. Yeah, you don't have to spend a lot on you get absolutely wasted. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Saving the best till last. Yeah. My name is Ruben Ziel and I'm also from Rotterdam. Um, I think the islands as well. I mean, we haven't been to Koh Rong yet, but we started Koh Rong Samloom and it was, yeah, just fun. We stayed at the hostel and good stuff. What did you get up to at the hostel? Uh, it's a kind of a party hostel. Uh, just uh, during the day, you just chill, and at night you get to party and throw drinking games and lots of dancing. Well, <laughs> we've seen a lot of dancing. Yeah, <laughs> we've all seen a lot of dancing. Thank you so much. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> Now, something you may have noticed about each of those voices in the Voxies was that uh, everyone was a little bit hungover, Nick. Well, I wasn't. I was a professional. Oh, I don't know if that's the case. Oh. Do you know why they were hungover? 
course I know why. I was there. Just tell the people why they were hungover. Because we went to a party hostel on a totally isolated island called Korong Samalam. I'm never going to be able to pronounce that word properly, Samalam. And this was your first party hostel experience, Nick. Now, the one thing I've learned about party hostels is that party hostel is a dirty word. They like to call them social hostels. So social. So these social hostels, they're the kind of hostel that you imagine when you hear the word hostel. It usually means there's a lot of young people, a lot of drinking, a lot of dancing. A lot of beer pong. The idea is that they sort of force you to socialise and meet new people, which is interesting. For me, at 37 years of age, I didn't think I was going to be welcome, for one. (laughs) But I ended up having a really good time. Mm Mm-hmm. I learnt that I am a limbo queen after a number of shipwreck shots. Yes, you were. (laughs) And you have the bruises to prove it. (laughs) Uh, It was fun. It was another great experience that we had there. Overall, we spent just over two weeks in Cambodia and we ended up cutting our trip short for one very important reason to every single traveller. It's expensive. Cambodia was more expensive than we expected. I think suddenly having to deal with trading in USD. I mean, Cambodia has its own currency called real. And they use that too. They use that too. So if you have something that's $2.50, you're going to get 2,000 real change. It's very, very confusing. It's very, very strange. And I think in two weeks, I mean, to talk dollars and cents, between the two of us, for two weeks, going to only four locations, we spent near $1,700. Yeah, we really felt like we were just churning through the cash. So if you're going to Cambodia, you're expecting it to be an incredibly affordable Southeast Asian country like Thailand and like Vietnam. It just wasn't that for us. No. And we, we didn't embellish by any means. We were having pretty simple meals, reasonable Street accommodation. Food. Yeah. But everything was just charged in these whole US dollars. It, it was a shame that we then had to miss going to some of the different countryside, regional places that we really wanted to visit. But it just came down to, okay, let's shorten this up so that we can get our visa and get out. We've mentioned several times, the visa jump, the visa jump. The visa jump. This is why we went to Cambodia. If you heard the tail end of our last episode, our one-month visa in Vietnam was running out. We had to leave the country, apply for a new visa and come back in. And that's what Cambodia was for us. The way to get back into Vietnam, though, the cheapest option is to take a land crossing, Mm -hmm. which is where you get on a bus and you cross by land instead of flying and it was cheaper. Substantially, a flight was near $250 to cross the border was Now, the thing about land crossings is, especially in Asia, they are plagued by stories of bribery, corruption, all sorts of horrible things travellers don't want to be a part of. Stolen passports was the one that put me off. The amount of stories we heard of, I just never got my passport back. Oh my word. I was like, the concept of it was terrifying to me. So we chose the Mok Bai border crossing, which is the big one that goes from Vietnam to Cambodia. It links almost directly into Saigon so it is the the busiest one and because of that there's much less chance that you're going to be ripped off Mm -hmm. or bribed or hit up by a tout or any of those things so we caught the bus through there. Listen we really wanted to record as much of the border crossing as we possibly could we wanted to have the microphone there the whole time chat to other people that were waiting for their passports and their visa approvals but we were told to put the microphones away Uh, so this is what we were left with. Here's a little bit of how it all went. Okay, so we're standing along the side of the highway that leads. How many k's have we got to the Vietnam border? Two k's? Uh, it'd be just under two k's, yeah, yeah. from the Mok Bai border, which is the most, oh, it's the busiest and the most common in and out pathway for people travelling between Cambodia and Vietnam. 
It's been a pretty harmless trip thus far, getting to the land border. I mean, when we jumped on the bus, we had our passports and our visas taken off of us, so who knows where they've gone? We have no idea how this process of crossing the border actually works. We're going to find out very soon. We've just had a feed, which is good in case for some reason something goes wrong. It's getting dark and there are lots of guest houses along the highway that are just, just in waiting. Case. <laughs> okay. Back on the bus. So we made it to Saigon, which is good because, well, that means we made it through the border crossing, which we were nervous about. Well, I was. How did you feel about it going in? We didn't really talk about nerves. It was just a very odd experience. Granted, you and I got through in about 40 minutes. When we spoke before the border, it was about 6.30. By the time we'd finished up, it was 7-ish by the time we got on the bus. This is crossing through two different borders as well, so you have to leave Cambodia jump back on your bus, get taken to another house where you have to grab all of your bags and belongings, walk back through a building and then go through the Vietnam process. And you and I were the last people standing. The rest of our bus full of people had gone through and it was just you and I standing at the gate with one guy and both of our passports on the other side. That was when my knees started to buckle. From the moment the bus stops and they usher you off, there's no direction, no signs of where to go, what to do. When we first got off the bus, we handed our passports to the guy that was from the bus company. He gave it to another guy who did not look like he worked there, so people were freaking out a bit. They jumped on a bike and buggered off into the darkness. With all of our passports. With all of our passports. So we walked through, got some bags checked, did some other stuff, and then he reappeared. It all worked out fine, but there was just absolutely no direction. So if you're somebody who's who's edgy or even just new to travelling in Asia, maybe a land crossing is not something I'd recommend. I'm really glad that we had a visa in advance and we organised it and we knew that there would probably be delays and issues because I think if you turned up out of the blue and just hoping to cross the border, I hate to think how long you would be stuck on one side, either side of the border. I don't think one or the other. I don't. I can't differentiate which is better. They were both very odd. I'm just glad it's over, to be honest. Yeah, it's, I'm just glad it's over and I don't really want to have to deal with Vietnamese border crossings ever again. <laughs> If you find yourself in a position of having to do a visa jump, don't be afraid of the land border crossing. That one in particular, they will give you the runaround. It might be a little bit confusing, but at no point did we ever feel like we were being ripped off. And I can't vouch for any of the other border crossings, but the mock by crossing there, it's not nearly as bad as I was expecting. In fact, there was one guy that we got chatting to on our bus that did it all in a day. He'd travelled from Na Chang down to Saigon, crossed the border, went into Cambodia, got a visa cancelled his visa, jumped back through Vietnam, and he was done in five hours. It can be done, but I'm afraid my my balls just weren't big enough to try that. (laughs) I was not going to do that. Kudos to this guy. He said he'd done it multiple times. So if you are going to come to Vietnam, need to do a visa jump, mock by border, get it done, get back into Vietnam. Before we wrap up our Cambodia episode, we would like to take you back to Kampot just one last time. Because in case you'd missed it, we really loved Kampot. Very, very subtle. <laughs> very <Gabby>. subtle. <laughs> the music you are hearing is being performed by orphaned and disabled students from the Kampot Traditional Music School. And if you do happen to make it to Kampot, they are more than happy for you to drop by and see what they're up to. And we promise that their talent will blow you away. 
You've been listening to Where Are You Taking Me? I'm Gabby Lyons. And I'm Nick King. Thank you for listening to our episode today. Can't pop till you get enough. I hope that title hasn't been confusing, but the pun was just too chewy to let go. For more, you can follow us on Instagram at Where Are You Taking Me Pod. Original song Letters from Emily, featured in today's episode, was written and performed by Connor Churland. His new album is available now on all streaming services. Gabby, we have to go. Normally at this point we say, hey, we've got a plane to catch, but we don't. We're already back in Vietnam, so yes, we're in the future. (laughs) We've already started piling up stories for our Northern Vietnam episode, which will be coming soon. If you've been listening to the pod and you love it, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. Tell your friends about it. Hit subscribe, and that next episode will be coming to you quick smart. For now, that's it. We'll see you later. Bye. See you later. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>